Well, welcome back to our pursuit of personal holiness and looking at the New Testament. We have two more lessons. Today is looking at holiness in the church, particularly where there are relationships in the church and the consciences of believers differ. This can be very tense. And I want to describe to you an individual that um, closely resembles the one speaking you to you right now. Uh, and it may resemble you, for all I know. This is the individual who has a list, who gets serious about the Christian faith and wanting to please God and starts looking out over the landscape of issues and goes, oh, well, there's an issue. I've never thought about that one before. What does God think about dress? What does God think about raising of children? What does God think about finances and holding a job? What does he think about food? What does he think about leisure and how you spend your time? Oh, there's just so many lists, so many issues to look at. And so you dive into a new issue. It's like, I've never looked at this one before. And ooh, that's interesting. And you gain convictions and you gain a position. And and so you kind of paint some more color on the floor. And then you gain another issue and gain some convictions and you paint some more color on the floor and and pretty soon you find yourself painted into a nice corner where you look around you feel like doesn't anybody care about these issues am i the only one that thinks about these things why isn't everybody else serious about pursuing holiness and boy do i feel isolated i don't know of anybody else that has the convictions i do in fact i don't even know what to call myself Should I call myself a Reformed, Baptist, uh, homeschool? uh, You know, you get a bunch of different labels on the end. It's like, like, well, wow, look at all these positions and where do I go to church? And then at that point, you might even feel homeless and hopeless because I don't know of anybody else that believes the same way I do. I don't know if that's ever, you know, come across your path in pursuing holiness But it's interesting how issues multiply. And a serious-minded Christian often senses that the tougher route is the better route. And in fact, if the mind can sense that this would be better than that, then obviously this is the right road. And so pursuing the highest and the best, the optimal route becomes the 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 actual the thing you must do and so after a while issues get combined with toughness and toughness leads to isolation and the irony of the whole thing is that it leads to a life without much love because you don't have many relationships and that's the opposite of what it means to be holy so there must be a better way Another irony about this whole situation is the Bible would call such an individual not a strong individual, but a weak individual. And so much weak that the Bible says the church has them as a burden that we should gladly bear. They are difficult Christians to have around, but we should gladly bear them, we who are strong, Paul says, because Christ did not come to please himself, but to bear the reproaches of many. And sometimes I wonder if it's because those weak Christians often cast reproach 
upon many strong Christians who are exercising and enjoying their liberty in Christ. And so there's an unfair reproach often given by the weaker, weaker brother who thinks he's actually the stronger brother because he has so much convictions and so many issues that he's examined. Our topic then today is, well, what went wrong, if we could say that, with this individual's pursuit of holiness? And what would be a better road if we're going to actually have a community of genuinely loving believers who are united together, even with their differences? Because it would be pretty impossible to end up starting a new denomination for every slice of differences among Christians and starting very long-named churches. Well, how do we deal with this? Here's a typical approach in dealing with it. I'm going to teach you a couple terms so you can kind of be aware of what it is. A typical approach would be looking at it in terms of opposites, these two poles of antinomian and legalist. Most people would consider the individual I just described as a legalist. They have made so many rules about their lives and how they should you know, conduct themselves, and it's very tempting. They may be very nice personalities, but it's very tempting to keep it to themselves. They may struggle to do so. But we often look at such an individual and say, wow, what a legalist. And so it appears like the the opposite would be the better choice to go. Like if you're going to fall into the ditch on the one side of the road, maybe you ought to veer a little more to the left. And so as Sinclair Ferguson says, well, I think it's Tim Keller in his foreword to Sinclair Ferguson's book, The Whole Christ. It's like we need need to sprinkle in a little antinomian just to kind of loosen things up a little bit. Antinomian means anti-law. So in other words, a little lawlessness would be helpful for the legalist. You know, just lighten up a little bit. Don't worry about it. You know, just just kind of do, you know, in other words, practice some things, do some things that you're just not going to think so hard about. Okay, and just kind of drop that for a while. Get a little antinomian in you. Francis Schaeffer, in his book, uh, True Spirituality, describes being with some young adults that have grown up in some pretty strict conservative environment and And he was kind of siding with them as they were talking about their taboos that they were shedding. You know, and this is late 60s, so you can imagine the kind of taboos that they were shedding. You know, maybe it was haircuts or, you know, I mean, wearing blue jeans or something. I don't know. They were kind of talking about these things. And at first he was agreeing with them as a man in his middle years. But then after a while, he started getting an uneasy feeling like, wait a minute. They're acting as if law itself is bad. And then what about the Ten Commandments? You're not going to start ditching them, are you? You know, about, you know, especially having God first, but then not murdering, not adultery, not committing, you know, stealing. And what about the the coveting command? Schaefer says, look at that one. That one's completely in the heart. I mean, this isn't an external conformity issue. When God gave his law, he was interested in the heart. And the summary of it, turning it positively, is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so, law is not a bad thing, guys. And and I don't know if he ended up correcting them that day or not, but the book that he wrote was definitely correcting them. And going down the roads like, 
God is still serious about his law. Just because the gospel has come, it doesn't mean that he suddenly dropped his law and said, I guess we're not going to worry about that, guys. Here's the good news of Jesus. This solution, these two poles, actually are secret twins. They look very different. You might call them fraternal twins instead of identical twins, but they were born at the same time with the same impulse. Let me talk to you about the prodigal son, and this may help kind of shed some light on it. Do you remember the story that Jesus told after telling about the lost sheep and the lost coin? Then he tells the story of the lost son. A man had two sons. The younger son said to him, Dad, give me, the, give me my share of the inheritance. Dad's not dead. This is very insulting. For whatever reason, the dad divides the inheritance between his boys and the young man runs off to a distant country and wastes it all on riotous living. Because he wasted it, he gets the name prodigal. At some point, he comes to his senses and realizes that, you know, my dad's slaves are doing better than I am. I think I'm just going to go back and say, Dad, I don't care about being a son anymore. Just hire me. Just make me your slave. And so he rehearses this line as he walks back home. And his son, his father sees him far off and runs to greet him. And before he gets the words out of his mouth that I've sinned against heaven and against you and I'm no longer worthy to be your son, the father throws a robe around him, puts the ring on his finger, which is authority over all the possessions again, puts the ring on his finger, throws a party with the fattened calf, I don't know if it's all the possessions, I'll just throw that caveat in there, but he's got authority and reinstated as son. Well, meanwhile, out in the field is the older brother. Now, he surprises us because there wasn't an older brother in the other parables. It was only about recovering a lost one. But the older brother is out there in the field wondering what the party is all about, and a man says that your brother has come home and your dad has killed the fattened calf. He's angry. Dad comes out to see him. Begs for him to come in. The son in angry words says that this son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours has wasted your possessions on prostitutes and you killed the fattened calf and threw a party for him. You wouldn't even kill a goat so that I could have a party. And he refuses to go in. These represent two individuals. The one is a son that feels very unworthy of being a son and wants to be a slave. The other is a son that's never left, but acts like a slave. His words to his father is, I've been slaving for you all these years, and you've never done anything for me. The irony of the story is both sons have the same view of their father. They don't think he's going to give them a good life. The young son doesn't trust his father, and so he acts on it. I don't want to obey him, and so I'm going to leave. The older son doesn't like his father either. 
But he's not going to act on his wants. He's going to tough it out like a good person should. It's hard to be religious, and it's very hard to be good. But you should do the right thing. And so he's been slaving for his dad all these years and feels very self-righteous about it so that when his dad is happy over a son whom he thought was dead, who's now returned, he refuses to rejoice with his father and he represents the Pharisees who will not rejoice with the tax collectors who are coming to see Jesus as Jesus is the one who is represented by the father in the story. I hope you can see, and this is the shocking thing about antinomians who are rebellious sons who throw off all law and all restraint and the good religious people who are the legalists who tough it out in church and stick around. They both have the same heart. They hate God's law. The only difference is one leaves while the other slaves. Richard Loveless, in his book Dynamics of Spiritual Life, called this the dichotomy between autonomy and heteronomy. Now those are fancy words for self-law and the law of someone else. What he says is, using Kantian categories, he says, due to social restraint, a person will give up autonomy, being a law unto himself, and he'll join back into society. But the society he joins back into is somebody else's law, not his own now. And so he encounters with a law not willingly accepted from the depths of his heart, but is but it resisted like a straitjacket or outwardly adopted like a mask. He's hypocritical. He doesn't really like the law, but he'll conform outwardly, while inwardly he seizes with anger. And Loveless concludes that many in the church today are trapped in patterns of dead conformity or angry resistance. And the, really, what it means is they don't love God's law which means they really don't trust the Father who gave it. But they're just not leaving. They're slaving and they're staying. It doesn't help a legalist to throw in some antinomian because the motive is actually the same thing. It's just manifested in what appears to be opposite behaviors. It's actually the same thing. What is ultimately needed is a new heart, a heart that actually wants to do what God wants a heart that trusts the Father who has given this law and says his heart is only good and his law is good and holy and spiritual and right. That agrees with all 176 verses of Psalm 119 that extols the goodness of the law. That's what's needed. Just like Augustine said when he was a young man struggling with his lustful habits, Command what you will and give what you command. You can command away, O God, as long as you give me a heart that wants to obey your commands. And so this is the promise of the new covenant that we are given in Christ. If you remember Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah, the pro- God says through his prophet Jeremiah that that. The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Judah and the house of Israel. Not like the old covenant, which I made with them at Mount Sinai when I brought them out of Egypt, the covenant which they broke. 
even though I was a husband to them. This time, he says, I will write my law on their hearts. He's going to put a new heart within him. Ezekiel says a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. The promise of the new covenant is an inner transformation, a desire to obey God, trusting him, that comes with the law of God itself written on the heart. Now notice, here's the challenge of the new covenant. The other, another name for the new covenant is New Testament. So when we look at our Bible, we've got Old Testament, New Testament. It's really the Old Covenant, the New Covenant. Our New Testament is the expression of this New Covenant. Here's the challenge of it. That New Covenant has the same law. The only difference is it was written on stone in the Old Covenant. Now it's written on flesh. It's written on the heart. How can it have the same law? Don't we read the apostles saying more than once, we are not under law, we're led by the Spirit? It seems contradictory to some things that the New Testament says, especially when Jesus pronounces all foods clean, when he says he's Lord of the Sabbath. It seems like changes have come. How did those changes come? if we're still having the same law and now it's just written on our heart rather than on stone, internal and external. <laughs> the, the riddle doesn't actually get any easier when we look at the Messiah himself because Psalm 40 says about Jesus that he delights to do God's will. Your law is on my heart. And so it's actually Jesus who has God's law on his heart and loves it. He delights in it. And so, what is this? Now, I hope you can see right now, you have just entered into where consciences differ. This is the first and prototype of all consciences differing, Jew and Gentile. The Jews had the law of Moses, and it told them, it told them what to do at all times, basically. I mean, how many threads to have in your clothes, and what kind of seed to plant and when to show up for this meeting and when to leave this meeting and what ingredients goes in that incense. It was detailed. And so it's like, the Jews, are they going to give up their law? How much do they keep? Well, you had Jews in the early church. And they're definitely, with culture, practicing a lot of different things. And some people today, when they get serious about holiness, they go back to that same Jewish well and they start practicing the same things the Jews did. They start all of a sudden wondering why we're meeting on the first day of the week and not the seventh day of the week. They start thinking maybe the food laws should be brought back into vogue. And so we're dealing with differing consciences. Again, the list gets bigger and the issues start piling up. This was the first one. Do we, are we able to like ditch so much of the Old Testament? And get rid of a lot of mosaic laws and regulations so that we can finally just be free? But if we can, what's this business about the new covenant saying write the law on the heart and about Jesus delighting in God's will and having his law in his heart? Well, the traditional uh, way to handle this in Protestant settings is to look at the three aspects of the law, civil, ceremonial and moral this actually reformed understanding where you have civil law that pertains to the government of israel traffic cops 
if they had any. And then you have the ceremonial that pertains to the temple, which is done away with because of the cross. Don't sacrifice animals anymore. And then the moral law. And the moral law, which predates Mosaic law, which is closely related to natural law, though not quite the same thing, that applies to all people at all times everywhere. And that's embedded as well in Mosaic law. And so if you could separate these three things out, because we're not Jews living in that nation, the civil law goes. Because we're living after Christ, the ceremonial part goes, and we can keep the moral part. And I think there's some ways of keeping that and and keeping that in mind. The sexual morality things of the Mosaic Covenant, for example, if you look at the reasons given in Leviticus for why this behavior or that behavior isn't right, if you look at the reasons, a lot of those reasons are rooted in the nature of it. In and of itself, it's abominable. And so, because it's abominable, it should be pitched. It in and of itself is not right. And so there's ways of doing that. But if you went to the, the dispensational side of the aisle, they might say something like Alvin McLean says, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The law is always singular. It's not like, you know, you get to have the law in this part or the law in that part. Theologians might want to do that, but it comes as a unit. We're under the law or we're not under the law. It's actually a neat little book that he wrote on that. And uh, it has some strong points to be made if you look at the usage in the New Testament. I wonder if Martin Luther maybe split the difference in when he called it a Zachsenspiegel. There's a good German word for you today. Let's all say that. Zachsenspiegel. Good. That was like the, the book of laws for the Holy Roman Empire. The Saxon book. It's Zachsen is Saxon. It's the Saxon mirror, literally. It's, it's the book of laws that governed. It's like the constitution for the German kingdom. And so the constitution of Israel is the law, Mosaic law. He basically makes the whole thing civil and then says it's like an application of the moral law for that people at that time, given their circumstances. And so, however you look at it, however, I actually favor Luther's view on this. There's different ways. You're going to end up landing in pretty much the same spot. You're not going to keep some of it, and you're going to keep the moral part of it. However you want to slice it and, and go with it, that's, what's, that's where you're going to be. You're basically going to come down to what Jesus himself said. The first commandment is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. Both quotes from the Mosaic Law. And then Jesus says, on these two commandments hangs the entire law and the prophets. The entire Old Testament hangs on two commandments. That's it. It's like the two tables of the Ten Commandments spoken positively where the first is you shall have no other gods before me and the, and the last is you shall not covet anything that's your neighbor's. Turn it positively. You shall love God and you shall love your neighbor. That's the moral law. What changes in the New Testament is 
Now, the standard for loving my neighbor is no longer how I love myself. I'm to love my brother in Christ as Christ has loved me. Now that the cross has made love known on a far deeper level, the standard has become Jesus and his love for us on the cross. I wonder if that's why there's a book that a scholar from uh, Southern Seminary talks about. The Davidic Covenant says about the son of David to come, that this one is a law to humanity. That the Messiah is himself the law. He embodies what pleases God and what God would expect Where now, if we speak about we are not without laws, Paul says, but we have the law of Christ. What it means, I think, is not that Christ gave a bunch of new commandments. It's that Christ himself is the law. That we put on Christ. He is what we are to be and what we are to become. Which is basically saying, love as I have loved you. I have left you an example that you should follow in my steps. I am the law. And so Christ becomes what we love and what we strive for. If that's so, then we have a wonderful provision. The spirit of Jesus himself lives in you. And so the spirit of the law, the law has been written on your heart. Because the Holy Spirit has been poured out in your heart and he will lead you as Christ is led. The delight that Christ has in the law is now in you. How many of you were English majors in college? Raise your hand. Wow, very few. This is good, I'm glad. It's only a couple in, good. So if right now, if I gave you a blank sheet of paper and I said, write a sonnet, that's it, right? You'd be like, I don't know what a sonnet is. Or even if you did, you'd like, how in the world am I going to come up with a 14-line poem that has 10 syllables on a line with intricate rhyme patterns? Ah, but I have a deal for you. If you would enroll in my university, the spirit of William Shakespeare will enter into you. And you will write like you have never written before. Now, that's pretty spooky and that's pretty weird and I understand that. But if you get the idea, it's like, oh, the new covenant says, do the law. And you're like, yikes. (laughs) Uh, Haven't we already proven by centuries of experience this isn't going to happen? Ah, but Jesus, who is the law, whose heart delights to do God's will and God's laws on his heart, his spirit is in you, meaning Jesus himself is now in you. You have all the resources you need to write beautiful sonnets, to live a beautiful, holy life, because Jesus himself leads you. You follow me? And so, if that's really so, then this loving the law is not legalism. It is at the heart of Christianity. It is at the heart of Jesus and it is at the heart of his gift to you and I, you and me in the spirit. This is not like something contrary to Christianity. This is at the heart of it. Here's what I like. Here's where it really drives home. 
I remember being in this exact room when we used to have the chairs turned the other direction. And I remember we were teaching through 1 John and we got to 1 John chapter 3 and the text is symmetrical. It says in the beginning of 1 John chapter 3 that those who do what is right are born of God. And the last part of chapter 3 says that basically those who love are born of God. And the text is symmetrical, meaning doing what is right is the same thing as doing what is loving. And doing what is loving is the same thing as doing what is right. That if I want to be a loving individual, I will definitely desire to know what is right in any situation. Philippians 1 says I need discernment. I need knowledge. It's not obvious sometimes what's right. But isn't it so that we sometimes think they don't go together? Like it, it actually would be very unloving right now if we pressed what was right. We feel that. So again, I go back to the challenge is it's part of Christianity to figure out what is right, to love the law and what is most loving. This is all part of it. We can't just go the antinomian route against the legalist threat. The middle road, actually, the, the ditching both of those separated at birth twins, the middle road is something different altogether, and that's the law of love, which is the law of Christ himself. So I want to explore that with you right now. How are we going to do that in community? You see this little circle over here? This, I got two axes that tells us what's wrong or what's going to be challenging about living in community, loving other people. The first is we're going to have a lot of those individuals who are weak in conscience, who come up with a long list of do's and don'ts, and yet, they're seeking to please God. It would be harsh to call them legalists, as if somehow they're thinking that is earning them a, a, road, a, a door into heaven or somehow making them you know, more acceptable to God. Okay? As if they were Pharisees. They're earnest Christian people. They're weak in faith, but they're earnest Christian people. And then there's strong Christian people who have grown into the liberty which is in Christ and whose list is not as big. They haven't come up with as many things. Perhaps they've even ditched some things along the way. Then there's a horizontal uh, axis, which is like the Jew and the Gentile. There's cultural differences that are neither right nor wrong. They're just different. J.D. Crowley and Andy Nacelli wrote the book Conscience that I'm going to be using quite extensively, and I would recommend that book. He was a missionary in Cambodia, and he came back to the United States, and he was going to step over. He was at like Christmas or some family gathering, and his nephew had his feet on like an Audubon, and he needed to step over those legs to go to the kitchen, and he couldn't do it anymore because in Cambodia that would be offensive. And now his conscience had been trained with that custom in mind. You don't step over people's legs. One thing that Cambodians have that he reported in that book that they're fine with is if you have a tree in your yard, and Augustine could have used this with the pear tree incident, but oh well, you can have a tree in your yard. Uh, people can just pick fruit as they pass by and it's okay. Now, you might say, well, yeah, you should be that generous, you know. Well, they're not asking. They just pick it. 
And he had actually planted a tree and it had only like three fruit on it. And somebody came along and like picked it. <laughs> and it made him really upset. But in their culture, they're not doing anything wrong. It's just like going through the fields of grain and the disciples were picking heads, helping themselves along the way. And yet in the West, in America, you're going, wait a minute. I planted that. And didn't you see the fence? You know, it's that kind of feel, you know. So there's differing customs out there from different cultures. And you blend cultures together in a church, whether at local congregation or working cross-culturally, and things get interesting. So these are the challenge of living in Christian community with differing, cult- differing consciences. Our text is so wonderful. Romans chapter 14 is where we're going to go for most of the rest of the time. So please find it because this one just lays it out. Romans 14 is the climax of Paul's gospel. He's gone through the wrath of God, the righteousness of God, the glory of God, the people of God, and finally he's gotten to the church of God. Which you're tempted to say, well, he's done with the gospel. He's explained the gospel. No, this still is the good news. How the church of God is multicultural, you might say pluralistic without being relativistic, is a wonder. That the church of God demonstrating the wisdom of God, even to the angels, is a beautiful demonstration of the grace of God at work. It is a unique institution Though the world strives for multiculturalism, the church actually embodies it. All tribes, kindreds, tongues, and nations are represented more and more in the church of Jesus Christ and someday will be fully represented around the throne of God. And so Paul glories in this, but he asks to teach, okay, how are you going to live when you got people, live in community, when you got people of different consciences? And to do so, he uses his core New Testament ethic of faith and love. I said earlier that love is the expression of the law, and it is. Love is the fulfillment of the law, but the message of the New Testament must first be believed in order to love anybody, God or others. That message in the New Testament is called the gospel. So the whole entire ethic of the New Testament is summarized in faith and love. 1 John chapter 3, verse 23 says that, that this is, basically this is the commandment, that we believe in his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. That's it. Faith and love is what you need to do. And this chapter has faith in verses 1 to 12 and love in verses 13 to 23. And it describes how to handle differing consciences with these three, with these two things. In fact, if you were to go through and trace the New Testament epistles, you would actually see most of them are based on faith, and then they'll have a hinge verse, and then they'll talk about love. Like that is very, that's not uncommon. In other words, this is what you should believe, and this is what you should do as a fact-value union. So, okay. Here's, this is going to be like a 1940s movie where we'll introduce the characters up front. The two characters in this chapter are Mr. Weak and Mr. Strong. Now, Mr. Weak is introduced to us in uh, verse 2, actually verse 1. 
We are told that we are to welcome him, but we're not to quarrel with him over his opinions. Now, you would want to, and he might want to, too. He might enjoy discussing and arguing over his issues, but you are to avoid this, uh, judging his issues. And so just kind of what you are to do is you're to welcome Mr. Weak into your congregation. Now, Mr. Strong, in verse 2, eats anything. But Mr. Weak, in verse 2, only eats vegetables. It is really interesting how food is a big deal when it comes to conscience stuff. Oh, boy, you know, don't put that in your mouth. You know, ooh, you do that? You drink what? Huh? Okay, this is a big deal. And all of a sudden, I can, I can just feel the, the, the kind of the, the interest rising in the room right now. It's like, it's kind of like I, I'm getting a little more tense here, you know, like, are you going to be touching on that topic? Yeah, I know it. You were thinking that, weren't you? you know, so, so it's like, okay, food issues. I, actually, it's kind of interesting. Our culture is like weirdly enamored with food right now. Okay? There was a book written by uh, Mary Eberstadt, uh, which talks about it's, it's the sexual revolution and how the sexual revolution shifted kind of like taboos from sexual experiences in the 50s to now food experiences in modern times. Like, like a young woman who would never, you know, in the 50s would never dare have a sexual, you know, relationship with somebody outside of marriage, you know, would just be cooking and, and, and you know, deep frying everything and like butter everywhere, just not caring about food issues. Where now she's very conscious about food issues today making sure everything's organic, making sure everything is this and that calorie and this and that thing, you know, and, 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 and it comes from this kind of free trade kind of thing going over, you know, and it's not this and that, but yet it's very loose when it comes to morality issues. Tobacco is kind of the same thing, you know. Tobacco went from being accepted to all of a sudden that's kicked out and then other things end up being accepted. And there's this, this weird kind of commod- making a commodity of things. And, her book actually describes making pornography even a commodity. And so it's like, okay, I don't think mankind can live without some standard. Even if it's just, I got to recycle everything. Okay? Some standard of right and wrong to feel like good about myself that I did something right. So, food. We have a whole channel on this, by the way. Okay, anyways. Okay. So, Mr. Weak eats anything. No, eats only vegetables. Mr. Strong eats anything. Here's their tendencies. Both of them have a temptation that's unique to them. Verse 3 says, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Despise means belittles, puts down, treats as non-important, not to be reckoned with. So this is what happens. The person who's strong in conscience, who's not very sensitive to these things, you might say insensitive at times to these things, looks at the other guy and says, get over it. I can't believe you'd be so stuck on this issue. Why are you so picky? Or to toss out a term from Puritan days, you're such a precisionist. You know, it's like very, very picky. And they despise that Christian. This is a Christian, this is a brother for whom Jesus died, is the language Paul uses here in 1 Corinthians. 
This brother should not be despised. Jesus does not despise his worship. On the other side, though, the weak brother has a temptation, and it's called judging. See it in verse 3? Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. I can't believe your church uses drums. Your church can't be a good church. I used to think any church that was of any size must be doing something wrong, compromising some area. You can't have a good, a good sized church in this day, you know, unless you're doing something wrong. You know, it's like, I mean, it's so easy to pass judgment. I'm definitely on the weak brother side, okay? Let me just, I'll just throw that out right now. I have not struggled very much in my life with the strong brother side, okay? I am definitely one of those people I've had to put up with that have been very difficult to put up with at times, including my wife had to put up with me, okay? It's very hard to live with a weak brother who finds every issue, like, this was made in China. I can't buy it. I drug my wife through so many stores at Christmas time trying to find something not made in China one Christmas that she got so upset with me. I was like, now she at least tolerates me on that one. So, and by the way, for the record, that's not because I don't love Chinese and don't want them to have food and things. It's because of their government and their disregard for human rights. That's why. And I feel like it's slave labor often. So just for the record. So, do you understand? Does everybody understand what we're dealing with here? We got two brothers, Mr. Weak, Mr. Strong. Mr. Strong is, is really kind of fed up with Mr. Weak and is despising him. And Mr. Weak is really judging Mr. Strong and can't believe, and even is wondering, could he be a Christian? And yet Paul says, no, Jesus has welcomed him. Okay, Jesus has already accepted him and you need to as well. And so this is the situation that, that we're dealing with. The issues that they are differing over are what theologians have called adiaphora. Okay, so you already spoke your German word for today. This is your Greek word for today. Everybody say adiaphora. Say it again. Adiaphora. Say it to your neighbor. Adiaphora. It means literally things of indifference. Like it doesn't matter. Now, that's really interesting. This chapter is going to say, the kingdom of God does not consist in food or drink. It doesn't matter, Christians. Paul says, I am convinced in the Lord that nothing in itself is unclean. He's convinced in the Lord. Now, everything created by God for a purpose, I don't think taking morphine just at random or any opiate at random is good. But if you're going to cut me wide open in the midsection, please. <laughs> I could really use something. You know, there's a purpose for what God has made things for. You follow me? There's a purpose for it. It is not to be rejected by those who believe, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4. It can be received with thanksgiving. It can be sanctified by the word of God in prayer. And if we didn't catch it the first time, verse 20 repeats it. Everything is indeed clean. It's in those categories of the middle Unclean, clean, and holy that we described early on. Lots of things are in the clean section. These are the things of adiaphora. They can be sanctified and offered to God in worship. They can be used with delight by Christians, thoughtfully, wisely, and lawfully, in the right way. 
These are God's gifts. Paul will even go to say, quoting Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Wow. It's all God's. Like all, like all truth is God's truth. All goods are God's goods. Okay? God's got it all. He made the world. And it's a gift to believers. And so, the issues that show up in the Adia 4 in this chapter are in verse 5 and verse 6. One person esteems one day as better than another. Another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Whether you have a Christian Sabbath, I would say falls under this or not. Do you do your homework on Sunday or not? Be fully convinced in your own mind and follow it to the glory of God. Give thanks. Then you have in verse 6, again, he who eats, eats in honor to the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while he who abstains, abstains in honor to the Lord and gives thanks to God. So if your convictions are, I shouldn't eat that. Good, don't eat it and give thanks to God for not eating it. And if your convictions are, I can eat that. Good, eat it to the glory of God. Now there's other rules, there's other guidelines on this. Paul says all things are lawful, 1 Corinthians all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Okay? Caffeine may be good, but not necessarily at midnight if you want to fall asleep. Okay? You know, all things are lawful, not all things profit you. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. It may not help your brother. It may not build up the church. All things are lawful, but I will not be mastered by anything. So if it leads to addictive behavior, remember... A little wine for your stomach's sake, Timothy. Don't be like Edmund Morgan in the 1770s who was kicked out of his church as pastor of First Baptist in Philadelphia for drunkenness. Thankfully, he repented four years later and was reinstated in the church. Okay, a little, not a lot. Don't be addicted to much wine. That's a requirement for elder and deacon. So, do you understand Everything created by God is good, can be received with thanksgiving, can be used lawfully, and yet there will be differing among Christians. But the key thing that Paul nails on is Paul was not concerned as a pastor to walk into a church and make sure everybody had the same convictions. Even when he knew the right answer. That is so striking to me. Even when he knows all foods are clean, he's not, in, not been out of shape to make sure the weak brother ditches his convictions about not eating meat. He'd rather make sure worship happens. It's far more important that faith and love happen and that thanksgiving to God is given. If that's our concern, worship, then we can truly have our own heart, our own opinions, the word in verse 1, opinions, our own convictions, verse 5, we can have our own faith, verse 22, before God. And we can practice it before God, to the glory of God. Because whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Make sure you can give thanks. But if you doubt, and you condemn yourself after having exercise that liberty it is sin for you even if it's clean in and of itself 
because whatever is not done in faith, this chapter says, is sin. And so, as Paul says in verse uh, 14, to him who thinks it is unclean, it is unclean. In his conscience, he thinks he is disobeying God, and so for him to partake of that would be sin. And this is where we need to be careful with other people's consciences. So let me back up a little bit and just say what needs to be done in kind of quick fashion. With regard to adiaphora, we saw in lesson number six of this series that the conscience needs to be calibrated by faith. Your conscience is not the Holy Spirit. Your conscience can be wrong. Yet, your conscience must be obeyed. That's odd. But it feels like you're obeying, disobeying God. Unless you can remain firm in faith, you can resist the difficulties of conscience if you know better based on what the Bible says. Like that Jewish convert that felt like they were spitting on the grave of their ancestors. They had to resist their conscience knowing it was right to believe Jesus is the Messiah, even though it felt horrible on the inside. Sometimes it's right to disobey your conscience when it means obeying God. I'd rather obey God than man, and sometimes man may be myself. The conscience, thank the Lord, can be changed. It can be calibrated is the language of this book by Nassali and Crowley. Second point to remember, Christ alone is Lord of the conscience. We do this before God. We belong to God, according to verse 8, and we will be answerable to God, according to verses 10 through 12. We will give an account to God. It doesn't matter, ultimately, what your spouse thinks, what your children thinks, what your parents think, what your fellow church member thinks. Ultimately, it matters what God thinks and what you think before God. Therefore, let each man be fully convinced in his own mind and the faith that you have, have as your own before God. So, for you as an individual, it may be good for some of you to realize, stop fretting about trying to get the right answer all the time. Even if you think you got the right answer, there's probably data you don't know on a lot of this audio for that if shown something different, you would realize, oh, it really wasn't that it really wasn't that either clear or significant. A lot of times we change our views as we mature in Christians because we realize I was dealing with half a deck. I didn't have all the data in scripture or in life. And so the better goal is to worship. Focus on giving thanks to God with your convictions and stop fretting about all the time I got to get the right answer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer quoted by um, John Piper in his book, Momentary Marriage, or no, actually, Risk is Right, he says, he says, sometimes it is better to act in faith and love than to sit paralyzed, do nothing, because you don't have the right answer yet. I think there's a caution there, but I think there's a definite truth there for some of you. You sit and fret and worry, and worry is a sin, and yet you think you're doing right because you'll sit and worry about it so long trying to get the right answer. Seek good counsel, know as much as you can in the Bible, and then make a decision before God and say, stop me if I'm doing wrong. 
He sent Nathan to stop the building of the temple. He can send somebody and do something to stop you. And so act in faith. Trust him. He's good. He will guide if you need to, if he needs to. So, second of all, in the church, we need to focus on unity, not uniformity. Our goal ultimately is missions. We will never be able to do missions if we are caught up in our little cultural traits, convictions of conscience. It'll be a stumbling block all day long. Richard Lovelace calls it um, de-enculturating, which is a fancy term for be flexible in your conscience enough to be like Paul, where when you're with the weak, you can be weak. When you're with the Gentiles, you can be like a Gentile. And when you're with the Jews, you can be like a Jew. And you don't feel guilty as if you're somehow being hypocritical or a chameleon. You're actually exercising a loving disposition that puts the gospel first before any individual conviction, which is wild. I am not there yet. I will just confess. My conscience has definitely gotten stronger in faith, but I am still not to that point where I can be that flexible of conscience that I can be all things to all men for the sake of the gospel. Caveat, the all things does not mean breaking the moral law, which is Romans 12 and 13, before you get to Romans 14, and it doesn't mean denying the gospel, which is Romans 1 to 11. Those things are presupposed by the time you get to Romans 14. Okay? It doesn't mean you can commit adultery with your neighbor's wife. Okay, it's not, no, it's not that. What it, it's in the Adiaphora realm. But there's a lot of cultural things there and generational things there that require a lot of flexibility if we're going to handle these things well. Within the New Testament, Corinth was too insensitive, Crowley and Nassali say, and Galatia was too oversensitive. And so was Colossae, some in Colossae. Some in Colossae had created a new law for themselves by visions. Those in Galatia were being harassed by the Judaizers, trying to throw Moses back on top of them again. In Corinth, they were doing anything. And it was horrible. And Paul just cracks down on them and says, the body's important, guys. The body was made for the Lord. Don't go to prostitutes. Flee immorality. And then this meat offered to idols, Crowley and, and uh, Nassali have a little spectrum on this where it's like, on the one side, you have the strong conscience people who don't have much sensitivity, who eat meat known as offered to an idol, and they even do it in an idol's temple. Then some can eat meat sold in the market, some can eat meat properly prepared, and some can't eat meat at all. Those that can't eat meat at all could grow in their conscience, in their faith, and begin to start eating meat as their faith gains strength. But those that are eating meat in the temple of an idol, Paul says you can't eat at a demon's table and then eat at the Lord's table. Your conscience has gone too far. You've denied the gospel. So the gospel and the moral law are the limits. We need to calibrate our conscience within them, and then we can focus on on loving our neighbor in a free sense. As Paul even says oddly, I seek to please my neighbor, even as Christ came to not please himself. There's a good way to please people. 
is a bad way to please people, too, to try and impress them and make them believe in the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 denies that way. But 1 Corinthians 9 and 10 says the way of pleasing people that removes unnecessary offenses is a good way. How many have ever heard Rosaria um, Butterfield's story? How she was a lesbian professor in Syracuse and in the, in the humanities there, and she couldn't throw a letter from a pastor in the circular file away because she felt like in integrity she needed to look at it and examine the Bible firsthand. She strikes up a conversation when that man and his wife have her over, they actually turned the air conditioning off and they only fed her vegetables because they thought, given her cultural background on the left side of things, that she would be very sensitive about the environment and very sensitive about, about health, eating healthy foods. And they were right on. And that sensitivity... And being flexible, being like the left when you're among the left, not in immorality, but in cultural matters, which some of us would really struggle with, led to other conversations that eventually led to her coming to Jesus Christ. That's a remarkable instance of an older pastor and his wife having the flexibility of conscience to recognize who they're talking to. This is what I would want from us. I would want it for me. We need to get there. So we need to, first of all, aim for a flexible conscience in calibrating, not demonizing anything God has made, but not glamorizing the use of all of it either, as if exercising my liberty all the time is the highest good. Love is what should dominate, and that leads us to the last point. The second half of Romans 14 cautions us to not be a stumbling block or a hindrance to a brother. If we are strong, we should not encourage them to go against their conscience. We should teach them, and in their own time, they can gain those convictions. Teaching is fine in its proper place, not pressuring. Teaching is fine. The teaching ministry of the church should lead to a greater liberty over time. But we are not to be a stumbling block to them enticing them to go against their conscience as if this is no big deal, don't worry about it, come along with me. Paul says that will destroy a brother. And I think it will destroy or ruin a brother because of this. What you are doing at that moment is you are inserting yourself between your brother and Jesus as if you need to listen to me, not to Jesus. The Bible has a phrase for that. That's called sinning against your brother. Sin is something only done ultimately against God. Doing evil, this is also evil because it harms. That's horizontally, brother to brother, Christian to Christian, neighbor to neighbor. But sinning against is Psalm 51 verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done that which is evil in your sight. If I insert myself between you and Jesus and say, don't listen to your conscience, listen to me, I am creating a situation of idolatry. I am acting like Peter, who forbid Jesus to go to the cross, and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. 
This requires rebuke, according to Luke 17. Because I must obey God, not man. And you have no business inserting yourself between my conscience and God. Now you can teach me, encourage me, all that, but to step in there and forbid me is to transgress against what belongs to God alone and to destroy, because if they listen to you, you will destroy their adherence to Jesus Christ and create an unholy fear in their heart of you when their only fear should be of God. Churches that do that, that abuse the conscience in that way and spiritual abuse, we call cults. Paul said himself that he would not lord it over the faith of another. And he tells elders, Peter tells elders in 1 Peter 5, not to lord it over the faith of other Christians. I, as your pastor, have no right to come into your home and to tell you what to do or what not to do with vaccines or masks, for example. You need to have your own conviction before God. It needs to be settled as an act of faith, recognizing God made all things, and these are optionals that can be used to the glory of God. What's your conviction on it? Have your own faith before God. But it is not the place of the eldership of this church to come into your home, into your heart, and tell you what to do about such things like that. The kingdom of heaven does not consist in masks and vaccines, but in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. An atmosphere of worship where hopefully a church allows for a variety of conscious expressions in a day and age of high volatility over such issues. Those are issues. I hope you can see this, right? So in a church, it would be a cult. In a government level, it could be a a tyranny. And in a home, it could be a slavery. I remember reading about a book from the 1950s. I don't even tell the name of the man. The book was about how to act in the home. He was a high-level leader in fundamentalism in the 1950s, and the only thing he emphasized in that book with all capital letters was, as far as I could see, a wife should obey her husband in everything. Ooh, that is horrible. My wife is my equal. I'm the first among equals. I honor her as fellow heir of the grace of life. She is definitely not my slave. I wouldn't even want to treat my children as a slave. Submission to my leadership and direction is one thing, but obedience to every nitpicky detail as if I tell you exactly when to sit down, when to stand up, when to go to the store, when to come back, and you do exactly what I say is not godly leadership. That is spiritual abuse. I hope you can see there would need to be a lot of counsel in a situation like that. And I would find warrant for a wife to step back and seek godly counsel and then, and then reassess the situation in a different way, hopefully with guided, guidance and conversation. Do you realize Jesus says this is so important? That if you cause a little one to stumble who believes in him, it would be better for a millstone to be hung around your neck and for you to be cast into Lake Michigan. I've seen a millstone in southern Indiana that was five feet tall made of quartz. I would not want that hung around my neck and be tossed out into Lake Michigan. This is serious. It is one of the five discourses of Jesus in Matthew. That's how serious it is. 
Jesus alone is Lord of the conscience. And we want to, as a ministry, develop that in faith and in love, holding it together, respecting those who are weak in faith, not despising them, and if we're weak in faith, not judging those who are strong in faith, all of us doing what we do, holding what we hold before God, and not proving to be a stumbling block to each other, but seeking to encourage each other and build one another up, and the things that make for peace is what this chapter says. So if I could throw out a beautiful thing at the end. The world craves for multiculturalism right now. It craves for it. We alone have the equipment to do it. Jesus has given us his example. He has come as a cross-cultural missionary from heaven. He adopted our ways and died for our sins. Can we not? become flexible enough to be all things for all men that we might win the more too. I think this is something that we can strive for. And as we do, I do think the beauty of holiness will be upon us. May the Lord bless us. Amen.